Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod. Where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurangai and Dauruk people, traditional custodians of the land where I am recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tangata Finawa of Tifanganui Atara, where I'm recording today. Yay, we're here. It's a Saturday. Has the weather been good for you? It's been incredible no. for us. No. Oh, no. No, it has not. We're trading off. This is what happens. I'm getting the good weather when you're getting the bad weather. Yeah. It's absolutely bucketing down today. It's horrible. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's fine. What can you do? Swings and roundabouts. Well, did you have anything that sparked joy for you this week? Yeah, so I got me me uh, tattoos done. Yay. So I got my Maggie Stevada tattoos, as I'm calling them. I got the swords from the Mr. Impossible dust jacket done on my back of my arm. And I got my Tumquan Arthur Edom and my BFF Franks, Frank, friend of the pod Franks, handwriting on my ribs. So, yeah. They look beautiful. Thank you. I booked them in ages ago. But I specifically booked them in a week after Grey Warren came out. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, we're going to read it. We're going to see how we feel. And then if we like it, we'll get the tattoos yeah. done. <laughs> Sensible. Um, yeah, so that's yeah, right. I was very happy. I mean, imagine if we had gotten tattoos before the last Twilight book came out. <laughs> I Twilight think- tattoos. <laughs> I feel like there would be a lot of people going, oh my gosh, why did I do this? Or even like Hunger Games tattoos, because I would argue that I also don't like how that ends. But, you know, never mind. You just you can never commit to a series until you read the last book, is all I'm saying. That's true. I do like how it ends, but I have more feelings about it. Like, I don't feel like it's a hot and heavy romantic feeling, but more settling into a shared life feeling. That's how I view it. But anyway, that's Hunger Games. We're not reading Hunger Games. So we, should, we should stick to the, the subject. Sorry. I digress. It's all good. Um, what sparked joy for you this week? Uh, so this week I've been teaching myself how to knit. I mm. am very bad at crochet, crocheting and I don't, everything I make when I crochet, it stands up by itself because my tension is like so tight. But I just decided like I have a pair of knitting needles. I have some wool. I'm going to do it. And I did. And it was actually really fun. And now I've learned a few different stitches and I've made some, let's see if I can find, I'm doing tension swatches, which is the boring part, but like it also helps me to get a consistent stitch mm-hmm, there you mm-hmm, go mm-hmm. yep and then i wash them and i find out how big things are which i can then use to do maths to make like hats and stuff so someday i'll get to that point but right now i'm just moving along through it and it's really fun cute i love that yeah it's nice to sort of be able to pick up something new when i'm as aged as i am Ah, uh, such a wholesome activity and you know <laughs> you're never too old to learn new things well it occurred to me it would have been really clever to have knitting when I was visiting you because it would have been a lot easier than dragging that quilt from room to room. <laughs> yeah, that is true. But I mean, you didn't need to finish the quilt, so it could go on the show. So. That's true. I needed every minute that I stitched with you as part of that quilt. So very glad I took it with me. Yeah, it all works out. It did. Well, this week we're reading chapters 28 to 33 through the theme of excess. So did you have a story about excess? Oh, I do. I do. 
So I grew up being too much and wanting too much. So excess has always been like a fault of mine since childhood. Sometimes even now I'm too much. Like I need too much reassurance from my friends that they love me. So I overwhelm them with care and I overprotect my kids. And look, they're neurodivergent. So some level of this is required to ensure that they grow up safe and well. But it also means I spend 10 minutes explaining the nuances of ADHD and autism to the substitute swimming teacher. And I can reconcile my personality excesses now that I know what they're about. Like I'm late learning how to create lasting friendships. I'm reparenting myself as I parent my kids. Da, 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 da. But there is one area mm-hmm. of excess in my life that I had to work really hard to get on top of. And that is the excess of completionism. Hmm. So I love a collection, as you know. I have many collections. I collect stationery, vintage dishes, fabric ranges, summer tone furniture, washi tape. (laughs) It was fine for a long time. Like, I have no problem being ruthless about getting rid of stuff when I don't want it Mm -hmm. anymore. But at some point, more started coming in than was going out. This created two problems. There was no way to actually enjoy it all, and there was nowhere for it to go, like physically. But still, I wanted to keep adding to it. And I kind of identified the problem as being that I had become a completionist. I needed the whole set in order to feel Mm -hmm. like I had achieved the thing. And -hmm. I have completed some sets. Like I have some beautiful midwinter dishes sets, but they're tucked in the back of my cupboard. I have shelves overflowing with fabric because I bought fat quarter bundles instead of just the prints I liked. I have dozens of coffee mugs from all over the world that I can't use or display because there's no room for them in my wee little kitchen. So there's this tension in this excess for many reasons. Aside from the house being in constant flux, I want the things in my life to be displayed, admired, loved, used. With so Mm -hmm. many of my collections gathering dust or hidden away, it made me feel guilty, which in turn made me want to collect more things to feel better, and it just became this cycle, and I didn't like it. I know myself, and I know that I'm always going to find something to be excited about. The problem isn't loving stuff, it's that I became focused on completing the set as a way to meet some need, and it became a habit. It goes without saying that the needs weren't met, which meant the habit was doing more harm than good. But habits are sticky. They have to be adapted, not abandoned. So the way I've worked through this problem was by asking myself, how do I reframe this? Can I still be a collector, which I do enjoy, without being excessive? Now, the answer seems really obvious now, but it took me so long to get there. All I had to do was redefine the concept of the set. What is a set, after all, but a curation? I needed to abandon what other people decided was the set and curate Mm -hmm. a collection with my own criteria. So aside from the financial and physical constraints, I had to consider these things. What am I aiming for? What do I need? Why this item? Can I use it? And do I have room for it? In short, the criteria became a question instead of an imperative. No longer was it, I need to complete the set, but why does this deserve a place on the list? A lot of the collections I amassed in that excess era, I've slowly rehomed. Sometimes the joy of passing it on to others outstrips the joy of acquisition. Sometimes I just feel relieved that it's gone. It's nice to be able to take joy in the things that I've kept, though. I'll never be a true aesthetic. I love things so very much. But in the process of becoming more careful, I feel like I've become more appreciative about my collections, my little collections. Mm. I still have too much stuff, probably, but it no longer feels like too much. It's just the right amount for me. Nice. That's good. It's the classic, um, does the spark joys moment? Because if it's causing you anxiety, then there's something not right, you know? Like if it's stressing you out having the stuff, then um, that's usually a sign that something is amiss. So good on you for recognizing that. It's hard. And I mean, there's another side to it, which is that I want to do all the things and some of the things I want to do require stuff. So especially the past couple weeks taking up knitting, it's like, oh, I need to get a lot of stuff for this. And you do, you need different size needles and you need different types of wool, but like, I don't actually have to have 
all of it to start, I can get a few things and then decide yeah. whether or not that's something I want to work with. Yeah, you don't need the whole set to start with. You can just get one set of needles and one piece of wool and like go from there. Yeah, and just, I mean, the, the one thing that I never say no to is books. So I do have a lot more knitting books than I'll probably ever need or use, but they are lovely to look at and I take inspiration from them and I know I will continue to look at them. So <laughs> I did not include books on my collection of things that I had to slow down on because that's just nonsense. It's never going to happen. <laughs> I'm always going to have too many of those. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, thanks for sharing that. Shall I do our chapter summaries? Oh, yes, please. I really liked this section. Mora and the Grey Man go on a really good date. Mora steals his phone to discover what he's looking for in Henrietta. Rona sees Gansey and Adam off and then goes to find out some, tr- some trouble. Noah lets Blue into Monmouth Manufacturing and it's a lovely afternoon for Blue, but it's tempered with hard truths. Adam is caught between the instability of Capeswater and his ephemeral future and experiences a moment of clarity. Yeah, I mean, Noah and Blue. So sweet. It is one of my very favorite parts of the whole series. And it is sweet. It's bittersweet, which is one of the things that Steve Otter is just a fantastic writer of. She just makes bittersweet make sense. Mm. But I think Blue's, Blue's life is not one of excess in any way, really. She's extremely sensible, and she doesn't let herself want things that she can't have, which is heartbreaking. Yeah, she's got that great line where she says, you know, oh, so this is just what I can't have, and not being able to kiss someone is the same as all the other things she can't have, like having a cell phone and all Mm. these things. She's like, it's unbearable, but I'll bear it. Yeah. She's so sensible, and I just thought it was, yeah, quality of not having excess and not being excessive in what you want and in your personality and in your expectations yeah. But also just a lovely moment of connectivity and connection between her and Noah. And Noah just being like, if I was alive, I would ask you out. Like yeah. this longing in him as well for this thing that he never had. It hurts my heart so much. It, It's like in the last book when he said, when I was alive, I was worse. You know, he, he has this second life, but it's not really a life. It's a half life. It's like an accident that he's there at all. And he wants to be better, but he just can't actually be anything. He, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, you can't really grow when you are, or change when you are a shade of who you were, right? Yeah. Literally a shade. Yeah. Yeah. No. I know. <laughs> it's just heartbreaking. Um, what do you think about the date that the gray man and more oh, went the on? Date. <laughs> I love the day. I love them. Like, I think the gray man similar to Blue is actually not very excessive. Like, he compartmentalizes and he holds himself so apart, right? So yeah. there's no excess in the way he behaves or in his words. Like, he's very considered in what he does. When Ronan observes him in the barns as well, you know, he he doesn't, like, muck around. He goes for what he wants. He looks at it. He takes it away. He's very controlled, very contained. Yeah. No excess. Yeah. Which I really enjoy. And I just kind of, like... Yeah, I love the two of them together as well. I love that they are just known. You know when she says, I'm sorry no one saved you? She says, oh, in that way. That she sees him for all that he is. And he's like, I don't, he doesn't make any effort to hide the deadness in him. Yeah. I just love that. They're just like completely known to each other. I just think it's great. Love it. (laughs) It's really beautiful. I think that their observations about each other are just so wonderful and the way that he's observing her observing him because this is from his yeah. this is his camera in this section i it just takes my breath away that he's getting so much from watching her as well as what he's getting from her like it's teaching him about himself too 
to be present with Mora, which is sort of the best sort of relationship. It's like the kind that reveal you to your friends. Like they make you the best self you can be. Yeah. Just by who they are. And that's really rare. It's really rare and wonderful. And I like I know that he's a hitman and I'm still judging Mora for this because seriously, <laughs> don't date somebody who's a hitman. That's just not good parenting. Sorry. Oh my gosh. I, oh, but I love when he says, you know, I see where your daughter gets it from. And she's so pleased yeah. by that connection. I just, yeah, love Yeah, me. she's quite chuffed. This is me whenever my kids are, someone says something nice about my kids. I'm like, yes, I did raise them. I did make them. Thank you. They are amazing. <laughs> I'm insufferable about my children, but you know this and love me anyway. Oh, of course. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the etymology of excess because I actually went and looked mm. it up properly. Um, Please do. And the way I always think of excess is too much. Like, it's just too much. But it actually comes from ex, which is, like, without, from, out of, and ked, which means, like, to go or to yield. So it's almost like without yielding as well, which I thought was a very interesting interpretation of an old word. Hmm. Because sort of not stopping when you're meant to stop is a sign of excess. Yeah, like Kavinsky, right? Kavinsky is kind of the embodiment of excess. We don't really see much of him in this section. He does text Ronan. Yeah. And that is excessive as well. He's just excessive in the way that he behaves and, like, tries to constantly get Ronan's attention. And and Ronan as well. Like, I think excessive kind of hubris in a way because he's like, I'm going back to the barns and I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want, you know? Yeah. Like, he's just OTT all the time. And taking Matthew with him. And Matthew is not a subtle person. No. He's very... Yeah. Loud with his affections. <laughs> yeah, I love that line. You know, he was very uh, sloppy and affectionate. Sloppy in his yeah. affections? I can't remember where it is. I'll have to look. It's in my notes. Er. No, I can't find it. It's somewhere. And then he stomps oh. up the stairs. Yeah, Matthew's affection was a sloppy, demonstrative thing, and he had not seemed to know what to make of their now motionless mother. Like, he doesn't look for his mom first. He just goes straight to his room. And, yeah. like, having the knowledge that I do now about the end of Grey Warren and, like, Aurora's <laughs> role in their life has really recast a lot of the roles that everyone plays in this series, especially. But yeah. I, I can understand being a teenager and not really knowing what to do with a beloved parent who it's is catatonic. just... Yeah, she's not. she's not responsive. She's not there. She's not dead. She's not alive. She's just not there. Yeah, it's strange to me, like, that she just exists in this house. And, you know, Ronan makes that remark about he checks to see if the, the nurse's car is there. I'm like, are we sure there even is a nurse? I think that's I a fiction believe, that Yeah, Declan that's has... been created. Yeah. Because yeah. Uh, that wouldn't make sense, would it? Yeah, no, I think that, that that nurse is a pretend person who maybe came in the beginning and then Declan was like, no, no, it's fine. I'll hire someone else. Or, and then off, yeah. you know, off it went. It, there's so much about that that's hard just having having sort of experienced the like what it's like to live through someone going through palliative care in my home it was yeah it's not fun and it very it very much hit me hard that Matthew like I really understood why Matthew was just like nope I'm gonna keep thumping up the stairs and doing my thing and yeah I mean yeah. we all experience that in some way or another if you're dealing with a, a sick loved one sometimes it just you don't know what to do. You don't know how to behave. It's it's yeah. an overwhelming thing. And especially when you're young, it's easier just to avoid it. Yeah. I was watching um, Ghosts, BBC Ghosts, which I love. It's made by the same people who make horrible histories, which is just delightful. But it's about this woman 
named Allison who inherits this mansion and like they're going to turn it into a B&B, her and her husband, Mike, and she has a near-death experience and all of a sudden she's surrounded by all these people who have lived and died in this house. And she's the only one who can communicate with them, but she can do things for them like turn the pages of books and like put their favorite TV shows on. So suddenly their world has opened up, but she's now sort of stuck in this place of like being the only one they can talk to who can actually make her life. It's like, it's like getting a bunch of really old children. The way that they like move on or whatever is they, they like sort of float up to the sky and then they're just no longer there. And one of the main characters was sucked into the afterlife and they all had this intense grief about it but they were all doing different things to deal with it and I just I was thinking about that a lot like that particular episode where that one character you know moved on and how everybody has to deal with it in their own way and they did I mean it's a comedy show but they did such a good job of respecting the fact that all of these people would miss this this person they'd lived with for sometimes hundreds of years there's no right way to do it but it can feel Mm. like too much you know yeah speaking of seeing other things you know that other people can't see adam and his little hallucinations caves water manifestations all the things he sees and how he's just like i'm not gonna not now not now and the more he like pushes it away the more intense it becomes right yeah yeah i don't think that so I want to get your take on this. Do you think that the alcohol is helping make it more flexible for him the way that it does for Ronan and dreaming? Like, do you think the fact that he's being handed champagne is making him more, like, making that open up a bit? I think what it's doing is making him lose control a little bit because he keeps such a tight rein on his life. Like, he's very good at compartmentalizing, right? Yeah. Like, he is very good at just shutting down the bits he doesn't need in a moment mm. to survive. And so with the alcohol, that... It's, that's elastic that is taken away you kind of lose the ability to do that and so yeah. I think that's what it is and I think you know Caves Water is just becoming more and more aggressive and trying to get his attention as well that needs him more now at this point excessive in its, its attempts to get his attention yeah it's like yeah well I mean what did Mallory say that it's both starving and overfed so the ley line yeah. is awake so it should be charged and full of stuff but something is draining it and it's trying to get Adam's attention to say, hey, help me, help me. And, it, you know, he hasn't really learned how to navigate what that mm. means, what that line of communication means. So like a kid who's trying to get their parents' attention, it's just going to get louder and more annoying until they finally get, what, what, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And I love that moment of connection as well, because, you know, Adam's connected to the ley line, but so is Gansey and the connection between Adam and Gansey. is just mm. beautifully illustrated in the last chapter of this section with, you know, meet their eyes meeting across the room and they share a loaded look because this is a such a big moment for them and they both know what it means in this sea of people who are just oblivious oh it's just it's beautiful what is it page 264 the business cards in his pocket felt irrelevant he was still searching for the only pair of eyes in this room that mattered where was gansey ah and just that that right back on the heels of you know gansey saying like this is the first time he's looked like himself in ages. I'm going to do everything I can to keep him this way. Like these men love each other so much. They just love each other so much that they, they're terrible at communicating, but the connection is stronger than the superficial stuff. I thought that was a moment of like Gansey's excessive amount of effort that he puts into his, his friends. Like he's always going so far overboard and trying to like, make his friends lives easier or simpler and often stepping in it and putting his foot in his mouth because of it right but yeah that whole thing where he was like 
he vowed to do whatever to keep him that way. And he's like performing. He like is actively performing with Mallory to like cheer Adam up, right? Yeah. And it's great. I actually I ended up looking up all those pigeons if you want to see pictures of them later. <laughs> no, thank you. So... I don't like pigeons. I don't oh, like no. pigeons. <gasps> but they're cute. No, they're not. I had some fly into my face here in Wellington and I have hated them ever since. It's because every bird in New Zealand is too round and it doesn't have good aerodynamics. They're all just These round. were just disgusting city pigeons and I was walking across a bridge and they just came in in a flock and a couple of them just like whacked me in the face with their disgusting wings. I'm like, I am walking here. I'm Can sorry. You F off. Anyway, so I don't like pigeons. Oh, these ones did look like puffins. Cute. I had to investigate them all, especially the, the pygmy powders, because it made me laugh that there was a, a pigeon called a pygmy powder and that they immediately said blue and both of them were in absolute, like, absolutely dying of laughter. I love that. But it's a nice little throwback to the first book as well when she was like pygmy tyrant, you know. Mm-hmm. I love that she's just like a little pocket rocket of a person. It's cute. Mm. Um, I want to talk about Kella's excessive personality. <laughs> following them to the the restaurant and Maury's like oh don't mind her she's just making sure that you're not gonna bury me in a forest like okay cool Kella that's great I love that she immediately follows that up with though she likes you and she's a good friend to Mm. have I both of which is like both of which are true things like Kella is a good friend to have and she does like Mr. Gray if she didn't he would not be there I love how extra they all are as well, though, with the phone. Like, gathering around the phone, waking Blue up just because they need tech help. But I would argue that is excessive behaviour from them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did you think that was on purpose because they really didn't know how to access phone email? Or do you think that was just to keep Blue in the loop? No, I think they genuinely don't know how to do that. They're just not clued into that stuff, right? Like. Mm. They have a landline and they all still use the landline, yeah. Yeah, and that, you know, no one seems to have mobile phones in the house, so. Hmm. Blue says she only knows how to do it because it's the same model as Gansey's phone. Which made me laugh because that means she's handled Gansey's phone so much that she knows how to use, like, you know, she's definitely, just some, I love the intimacy you get about Blue and Gansey without it being ever explicitly said. It feels like I'm following a trail of crumbs, but like, honestly, I'm here for it. Hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the sneaking into Monmouth because that felt like such a delightful and exciting and very, I love that it was illicit, you know, it was an illicit thing to do. Like they snuck in together, she and Noah, and they like played pool and jumped on Noah's bed and like she ate a mint leaf and breathed in his face and they did all of these like really nice teenager things and you sort of forget that they're actually just teenagers. They're young. They just want to goof around and hang out with their friends and everything is so big and it's happening so much. But it was nice that they had this moment to like breathe. And with it came those truths, you know, not just not just Blue and Noah kissing, but also the the recognition that she actually likes Gansey, like likes, likes Gansey. Like that was a hard one for her to make. But and also the recognition that she doesn't like like Adam. Right. She doesn't have a crush on him and he's not her true love. Like, she says it so quickly and she's like, oh, I'm surprised I said it so quickly. But, you know, she needs to reckon with that. I've always said when you know, you know. And when you don't, you don't. Like, you you, you really don't. Like, you can sit there and go, oh, maybe. Maybe they're my... Maybe. But then I feel like if you know that... If you want to spend your life with someone or if you want to spend more time with someone, you know already. 
Like you can figure it out quick. Yeah, that's just my experience of it, but that does feel true to me. I will say I really liked that she and Noah had this beautiful, intimate, cozy afternoon together. I felt like they were able to be their real selves with each other. And and Blue doesn't get a lot of opportunities to just be messy and vulnerable. So it feels like she doesn't have an excess of that. So I'm pleased that she got a little bit of it. Yeah, I also love the description of the kiss, like all the lols leading up to, you know, the proper kiss as well. But just that description of the, you know, page 243, there was only the time that they held between them. You know, they stopped being Blue and Noah. Mm. It was only the time they held between them. It's such a beautiful scene. Like, it's just beautifully written. It really Um, is. Yeah. And she cries. On page 244, she let him kiss her and kissed him back until he pulled back on an elbow and clumsily wiped away some of her tears with the heel of his fist. It's just... I can't. I can't. This girl does not get what she wants. (laughs) Because, you know, it didn't bother her before because she was like, it's not something I can have. But now she's experienced it and she's like, oh, this is what I can't have. It's... Yeah, in a way, you know, I, I always say you can't miss what you don't know. Like, you can think you do. You can think mm. about it and think objectively about it and think, oh, yeah, that might be nice. But until you know what you're missing, you don't really feel it. Like, the emotions aren't as real. Yeah. Um. So now she knows and it hurts so much more. But it's also beautiful that she got to have this moment because she thinks, you know, this is the first and last time in her life that it's going to happen to her. Uh, yeah. And she has to, like, she pretended it was Gansy. Yeah. I mean, that's how she got into it. Otherwise, it was just too silly. She had to remember the way she felt when she kissed Gansey in the, 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 the memory tree, the dreaming tree. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Um. Yeah, it's just a lot. I have an excess of feelings about this section, that's for sure. <laughs> you know where I didn't see excess? I thought it was interesting when Maura was talking about her visions or like seeing the future because, you know, the mm. gray man asks her about it. And she says, it's like a dream or a memory, but forward. And I'm like, that's actually like quite subdued. There's not a lot of excess that comes with that sort of practice. Like it's very restrained. And it really mirrors how Ronan dreams, right? Mm. He can't always remember what he's dreaming and he can't take things out of the dream unless he's able to like memorize it 100% in real life to know what it's like. Yeah. Like when he's talking about the Camaro, right? And he's like looking at the pollen on his hands and... Feeling the vinyl. Really feeling, yeah, feeling the moment. And then there's that lovely line where he says, on page 237, you could take this whole car out, which I think is a beautiful bit of foreshadowing. Mm. A bit like Adam does. He wants to be able to create Gansey's life for himself in some way. They they, they all do. They all want Gansey's life. I, I wanted to talk about Gansey being out of time because his connection with the ley line and his connection within the Gansey, like there's a lot more, there are a lot more allusions to his nature like the ganziness of him in this book than I had really picked up on the first couple times I read it Mm. um but I did a like I listened to the audiobook of the Raven King and that has kind of made me look for a few more things now Mm -hmm. um and so one of the things I really loved was in the party that there was a woman who was like trying to get the measure of Gansey like how old are you you know Mm -hmm, and um and on page 260, Adam is observing this, and he says, Adam knew that she had sensed the other the otherness to his friend, the sense that Gansey was both young and old, that he'd only just arrived, or he'd always been. Mm-hmm. And then there's that moment when Blue and Noah are letting themselves into Monmouth, and, you know, although Gansey had only been gone for 
a few hours, it suddenly seemed longer, like this was all that was left of him. He's everywhere and nowhere at once because he is out of time. He's a, a person made out of time. But I just yeah. wanted to flag that I had picked those up this time and that they really felt like the connection was really strong through the narrative for that that particular aspect of the story. Yeah. Yeah, Gansey's really interesting in that party scene, both because of that moment, I noted that as well, but also just the fact that, you know, Adam makes that comment about him, his friend disappearing and he becomes the heir, he becomes this personality. And yeah. Gansey doesn't want to be that person. He doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to do this. No, he's just killing like, him. Puts it on, right? Like he, yeah. And it's interesting because Adam is the same. Like Adam thinks this is the world he wants. He's trying mm. so hard, but he actually hates it. Like, he hates these people. He is judging all of them. He, uh, like, abhors the whole system. And I really love that moment when Gansey says, you know, oh, God, like, imagine Ronan. <laughs> Ronan was here. <laughs> and Adam says on page 259, for a fleeting moment, Adam could imagine it. The brocade curtains decaying in flames. The decorated consoles screaming from beneath the harpsichord. Ronan standing among it all. You know, like... yeah. Ronan is doing what Adam wants to do. Like, Ronan would burn it all down. And that's yeah. actually what Adam wants. But he thinks he's not allowed to because he was con concocted this story, his way out, his ticket out. Yeah, I kind of think Adam wants to be able to come from the position Gansey's in in order to be like Ronan. Like, he hates them for the virtue of having more than him and being wasteful, being excessive with what they have. But he wants to be able to hate them on their level like he wants to be as wealthy so that he can then despise them where they're at the so options. That they, yeah. yeah so they can't look at him and be like oh you're less he wants to be like no i am your equal and you're all terrible he but just so hasn't much figured of that, that out yet so much of adam that is projection he's like you know oh they can see yeah. that i was born in a trailer park they can smell it on me like adam no one is seeing that and he has that moment where he's like oh for the first time in his life someone is looking at him and seeing power and it's like yes because they don't know your history. They just see yeah. you as this, like, friend of Gansey's. Uh, he, he honestly breaks my heart sometimes. I It took me a really long time to be able to find the way through the social situations. When people ask about your life and what it was like growing up, you sort of have to learn the code words and fit them to the right situations. And Adam hasn't done that yet. I can see him learning, though. I think one of the best things is w watching Gansey sort of smooth over a mistake. Mm. Gansey's talking. The woman mishears him. She laughs like he's told a joke. So he laughs, too, and covers the awkwardness. And Adam makes a note of that. Like, he's he's yeah. absorbing the Gansey family Gansey, not the, the, the Monmouth Gansey, who's, who Gansey really feels like. And I thought that was so interesting because I've had to do the same thing. Like, I do mirror a lot and I do watch people in order to know what to do in social situations mm. because I didn't have that fluidity of growing up with different types of people, I guess. Like, it was very small town, small environment, big family, one type of culture around. And Adam's the same. He's been in a very restrictive environment with, and not even, not even not having anything excessive just not having like a diversity of things to look toward so he's having to learn this all now and he's having to do it from this compartmentalization as you spoke about but Gansey's doing a similar thing where he already knows how to talk and he doesn't want to be the person that knows how to do that mm. yeah and also like oh, Adam is just so sensitive right when yeah Helen when she, Helen is like yeah, you scrub up well and page 258. She meant nothing by it, nothing at all. But Adam felt an ice chip pierce his heart. It's like people say that all the time. It's such a throwaway line being like, oh, you scrub up well. But he sees that as such an attack of his 
you know, yeah. upbringing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Guilty of that one as well. Feeling like, oh, they can tell that I grew up blue collar, can't they? It's, nobody cares. No one cares. And if they do, don't care about them. Oh, no. People are the worst. Yeah. And the best and the worst. I really like the way that the whole entire party seemed so unreal. I like I felt like it was written in a way that it reflected how Adam was experiencing it. Yeah, it's all a bit OTT and a bit, you know, almost farcical in a way, the way these people are behaving. and But very yeah. excessive, right? Like the clearest example of excess in this section, this excess of wealth that is on display in this yeah. moment. And uh, do you have the keys to this car? And, you know, because mm. it's the only one not blocked in. A few years ago, we became a two-car family. And the only reason we became a two-car family is because we would have got, we would not have gotten anything for trading in our little car. Mm. <laughs> and keeping it as a backup was more valuable. Like, we had to make an economic decision about that. And we are not struggling financially, but we still had to make an, like, you know what I mean? The fact that these people have, like, literally cars, comma, dozens, is just mind-blowing to me. And that so many of them are parked in, like, what? That is too many. That is too many. That is an excess of cars. If you have excess more cars than cars. people who can drive them, I think that might be too many. You can have one and then a project that you're working on. That feels fair. Cars are <laughs> fascinating to me because I'm like, what do you just decide in the morning which car you feel like? Like, oh, I feel like it's a, I don't know, a Mustang day today. And then off you go. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I just drive the one that I think is mine. Uh, don't tell my husband that I think it's mine. But yeah, I drive the one that I think is mine. Oh, yeah, no. Like, two-car families <laughs> totally not. Like, I don't think that's weird at all. Like, I've always, we've always been a two-car family. Yeah. We've always had two cars. So I don't think that's strange. And like, See, usually my parents it is, like, had one each. Yeah. Yeah. And usually it is one each, right? So one's your car and one's someone else's. Like, yeah, that's just how it's always been. My mum had a car. My dad had a car. Like, that's fine. I don't yeah. think that's weird. But yeah. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about like you know, I don't know, MTV cribs where they're like Lamborghinis <laughs> and Porsches and all these cars parked outside. How yeah. do you decide which one you're driving every day? How do you decide? Are you matching it to your outfit? That's quite fun. And 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 like how how do you know how to drive all of them, right? Because they all have like my car. I have just you know, like I said, we have just the two, but they're so different. That yeah. When I get in them, I have to remember that like they're slightly different accelerations and the clickers on one side and the other and the yeah, other side that the is other. honestly the worst if mm. the indicator is on the other side and the car that is a nightmare that is a nightmare mm -hmm. i hate that yep so yep. if you're having an excess of cars i think all the indicators should be on the same side and the petrol tank what if it's on the other side when you go to fuel up you have to always look it's so annoying i like just knowing one thing really well <laughs> like this is <laughs> yeah having lots of cars seems very scary to me and excessive. It's not necessary. No one needs that many. You know what else is excessive? Arriving mm -hmm. by helicopter. <laughs> yes, I had that too. I thought that was so silly, especially considering how unhappy Adam is about it. Mm. Like it's just adding to his stress. It's quicker, I'm sure, but couldn't they have just gone at night when the traffic wasn't bad and driven? Yeah, and even Adam's like, I don't want anyone to know that we arrived by helicopter which fair yeah he's not embracing the glamour side of it he's not being like yes hello i belong here he's like everybody's gonna know that i don't belong here bless take it till you make it that's right put a smile on your dial and you'll be all right
Mm. I love that he called Henrietta the epicenter of the universe. That made my heart very happy. Yeah. I think so, too. It is pretty great. That was all my excess and my connection. Did you have anything else? No, I think that was it for me. I've got a few tangents. Yeah, Um, go on. I love that Gansey is still trying to protect Adam. So in the helicopter, Mm. Gansey, page 233, Gansey badly wanted to tell Adam that he would be all right, but there was no way to be confidential with headphones on. Adam would have been mortified for Helen to know how nervous he was. It's such a loving thing. Like, just dadsy, 100%. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I love that on page 237 when Ronan was using his dreamed keys uh a smile was working over his mouth though no one was there to see it especially because no one was there to see it um as a person who has a lot of grumpy friends i love it when i catch them smiling because i'm like aha you do know how it is possible Uh, my husband especially (laughs) one of our favorite games with each other is trying to get the other one to crack and we're both really good at that like deadpan face so just a little joy for me um and I, I, it was all about smiles at this point, really. Um, I loved the gray man's description of Maura's smile. She beamed at him. She had one of those lovely, mm. open, perfect smiles. Genuinely happy and very beautiful. The gray man thought, this is the worst decision I've ever made. <laughs> yeah. It made me laugh because he's, like, so smitten with her. And he's like, this is a really bad idea. But I'm going to continue with this date because I can't not. Mm-hmm. How about you? Did you have any other tangential marginalia? I've actually said all of mine because oh, I was way off track, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we digressed a bit, but that's how it's supposed yeah. to be. Hmm. Uh, what did you have for your in-depth? So my in-depth is on page 2221, so it's right at the start of our section. It's when, you know, Greyman's picking up Mora for the date and mm-hmm. Kala is sitting behind the wheel and she does her little sarcastic wave at him and looks a bit deadly and then Maura says, she likes you. Maura said, you should be glad. She's a good friend to have. So theme, I think, is like, like I said before, Kala's excessive personality. Mm. She brings the drama. She's here for it. Also, just the connection between Maura and Kala and Persephone. I've spoken about that before, but I just think yeah. it's such a lovely bond they have. And Blue mentions it again in this section, you know, like their three heads together, like one entity. One entity. I just really love that for them. But it just reminded me of... So in the last two weeks or so, I have had multiple people say to me that you're very blunt. And also, I have been told multiple times that I am, in quotation marks, the meanest friend. So this is fine. I was just like reckoning with this yesterday (laughs) when I was getting my tattoo done and I was talking to my tattoo artist who is also grumpy and mean and judgy like me. And I was like, it's an interesting idea Mm -hmm. that I am mean or that I am blunt. And if I'm okay with that. Like, do I want to soften my edges? I used to be softer. Does that bother me that I'm no longer soft? That people have this perception of me being blunt and mean? Or am I okay with it? Like, you know, I don't... You don't ever want to hurt people unnecessarily. You, mm. you know, there's that description somewhere in these books. I forget where, where. Where it's like, you know, someone will fall on him and cut themselves. Yeah. And I'm like, sometimes I feel like that's me. Like someone is going to fall and cut themselves on me. And should that be my responsibility to not be that sharp? But at the end of the day, I am a good friend. Like I know this about myself. Like, yes, I'm grumpy. Yes, I'm mean. But when you're in with me, I'm a good friend to have. And like seeing this line, I just thought that was really good to know. Like she is not shy about who she is. She's not going to soften her edges or, you know, 
be polite, but she's always going to have her friends' backs. And I think that's me too. Like, hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. I'm going to be your meanest friend, but I will fight to the death for you. So isn't that nice to have? So going forward, I think it's just like, yeah, just embrace it. Like, I got here through various steps in my life and I'm very happy with that and I shouldn't have to soften that for other people. Some people can hack it, some people won't. And that's okay. So yeah, accept yourself as you are. Well, I love you and I think you're a great friend to have. But I am very mean, so it's okay. (laughs) I don't think you're mean. I think you just expect directness and provide directness. That's different. And I appreciate it because sometimes I will be so scared that I'm like accidentally annoying the crap out of you. And then I remember, wait, she would just tell me if I were annoying her. She would just say, that is correct. Not right now. I can't deal with it. Too many. Like I would get that feedback and that would be like, oh, good. I have a boundary. I can follow that. It's really very handy, actually. So I don't think you're mean. I think you're good at being a friend in many ways. Kind. And you put up with me rabbiting on about my kids and trying to make stuff for you endlessly. So you're good value in that way, too. You say put up like that's annoying to have things made for me. Like, why wouldn't I want that? If anything, I'm taking advantage of you. This is true. Not enough, though. Take more of my things. I want to make them all for you. Bless. Um, What was your in-depth marginalia? Uh, I also stuck to Mora and the Grey Man's Date because it just bloody delighted me. I loved it so much. Um, So I wanted to cover the bit on page 222 and he was observing Mora. So the, the text goes, you didn't really see the sadness or the longing unless you already knew it was there. But that was the trick, wasn't it? Everyone had their disappointment and baggage. Only some people carried it in their inside pockets and not on their backs. And here was the other trick. Mora was not faking her happiness. She was both very happy and very sad. So they're on this date. They like each other a lot. Mora's beautiful smile and openness and aliveness is so attractive to the gray man because he is, as we discussed, pretty dead inside. Mm. Um, But because he's such an observant person, he knows that she's not one or the other, sad or happy. She's both. And I think it relates to the theme because Mora is so connected to her feelings. She can hold them all at once, which is amazing. That is a really skillful and emotionally healthy thing to be able to do Mm. um she does have a lot of feelings um but she has a lot of them and i think that the gray man's a bit in awe of her he has so few and she has so many i think it it could fall to this idea that maybe she has an excessive feelings but i love that he doesn't see it that way um so the text that it reminded me of is don't hesitate by mary oliver which is a poem Mm -hmm. we both love Um, mora knows that joy is not made to be a crumb she knows that sadness and awfulness and terrible things happen. And like the poem says, much cannot be redeemed. But she still chooses hope and love and joy. She chooses to to eat the whole cookie and not just a crumb. Joy is not made mm. to be a crumb. She she leans into it. She accepts it. And I, I really love that. Um, so going forward, I don't think that sadness and happiness are mutually exclusive. I think we often set them up as this diametrically opposed like feeling dichotomy or something, but they're not really, you know, they don't really actually oppose each other. I think you can feel them both at once. I mean, some of the hardest times in my life, right after the the birth of my son, for example, when I was horribly depressed, I had terrible postnatal depression, were also some of the most joyful because I had this beautiful baby, two beautiful babies that I absolutely loved. And like the joy was incredible, but I was definitely in the weeds as well so yeah. I just 
really think that there is more to be had than like seeking joy only for the sake of joy and recognition that we can be sad and things can be hard, but also we can be feeling the good things even as the bad things happen. So yeah, that's where I want to go with that. No, I love that. That is so important, I think. And I think we put too much weight on happiness as a goal, as an end destination, when it is not something that is permanent. You're never going to be happy all of the time. And why would you want to be? Yeah, (laughs) we just put too much stock onto that. Like, too much... We give it too much power. Mm. We are not our feelings, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. It's nice to be able to get through the thing, but not be the thing. Sometimes it does Mm. feel like I am my feelings, but you're right. It is just a feeling. It's a part of me, but it is not all of me. You want to be the pond, not the fish. Yes, I love that. Yes. So good. Um, who do you want to spotlight this week? I'm going to spotlight Blue this week because of that, you know, this is what I can't have line. I just think <laughs> when you realize there are opportunities that are not for you or there are things that you're never going to have in your life, it's a hard thing to wear, especially when you've had a taste of it, especially when you've had a dream. I think of like, you know, sports stars, for example, who gets taken out with an injury in their first season and will never play again or musicians or anyone who has any dream at all when you try to reach it and you realize that you can't do it like it's heartbreaking and i think it's just a really difficult thing so just wanted to spotlight blue for this hard thing that she's doing and she's so practical about it and i know that there are many people out in the world who go through this all the time and yeah i just want to say i see the struggle oh blue i love her so much who did you want to spotlight um i want to spotlight the gray man so he in this conversation with Mora, he reveals that he has an abusive older brother a sociopathic older brother and so he's had this awful childhood where somebody much cleverer and functionally evil used him for horrible experiments and like it just i mean he had a really awful time Mm. i think it's really interesting he's able to recognize that he's taken damage it's really rough but he still is drawn to the good things he still is drawn to someone who feels all of the feelings and wants him even though he's not saved you know from this awfulness that's that's hurt him and shaped him so i just yeah shout out to our favorite disco loving kinks listening to bell bottoms (laughs) owning hitman yeah that's great i love that he gets i I just love that more is not trying to change him He's not trying to change her. They're just seeing each other and going, yeah, yeah. I like it. I Noticing like it with all they... the baggage and the sadness. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. And I love the way that they describe each other. Like, you know, they both notice that the other one took some care with their appearance, but they're not making it a big thing because they don't want to make it a big thing. Like, they just note it. And, but but you they know... both know that the other has noticed it. It's great. Yeah. And like the way that she steals some of his salmon so they'll both have fishy breath and their kiss is really beautiful as well what's that line um a a kiss is a lot like laughter if you haven't done it in a while it doesn't really matter if the joke is funny you know it's Mm. really good so i also love that he like calls her and is like if you're gonna steal anything else can you just tell me so i can plan for their absence (laughs) i did like that she replaced his phone with the sword of the king is the king of swords yeah 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 Little that she slipped a little card in there as well, like, oh, this was me. 
They're not subtle. Just so you know. (laughs) The women of 300 Foxway are not subtle. I love that for them. I love that they just bring (laughs) the drama into it. It's it's a good match. But then also, you have a child. Please don't date a hitman. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Sigh. Anyway. (laughs) Uh, Next week, we're going to be reading chapters 34 through 40 through the theme of frustration, which should be really fun. (laughs) Yeah, I love a bit of frustration. Every day Mm -hmm. is a frustration. (laughs) I know. That's why you're on the story. You can just talk. Like, I'll give you the whole first 15 minutes to rant about work if you would like to. I am here to listen and support you in that. I'm sure there'll be some fresh frustrations to talk about. There always are. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for potting with me, Jen. It's been amazing. And we were so quick today. Look at us. We're very on task today. I really appreciate catching up. It's so good to see you. Oh, it's been really good. All right. I'll see you next mm-hmm. week. All right. See ya. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Marginally Pod is written, edited, and produced by Jen D and Jen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed our chat, you can subscribe to Marginally Pod on your podcast platform of your choice. Your support means the world to us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. For extended show notes or to find out more about us, visit us at www.marginaliapod.com.